Um, well, good morning, everybody. It is good to be with you. Um, it was recently pointed out to me, actually, that I get up here every Sunday and I say exactly those same words. And, I, and it's a comfort mechanism to me that I say, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. And anyways, the person pointing this out to me said that this might, I might need to change it because they said it might be an indicator that either like I'm not fully human, like there's something robotic about me, or rather, and this is a bigger problem in 2024, right, that I'm letting robots do all of my writing for me. Um, and so I want to clarify for you, like very directly, again, that's not the case. No robots involved. Um, and actually this morning I'm saying precisely what I mean to say, which is that it is good to be with you. And this turns out to be our topic for today, actually, how and why it is good for us to be with each other. And this morning, as Andy said, we're in the third week of our series, Together on Purpose. And in the previous two weeks of the series, we have explored how the community of the church exists for God's sake in the first week to be a source of love and purpose and delight for our maker. And then also in the second week, how the church exists for your sake as a person who needs other people to be most fully and most truly yourself. And now in week three, what we're going to do is we're going to look at how the church exists for our sake, not as individuals, but as a group together. And we only have two verses from scripture to look at today, and I'd like to get them in front of you here at the start. And then um, they're both well known, but I'm going to put them on the screen and then we'll circle back to each of them as we go. And the first of those verses comes from the book of Proverbs, and it reads like this. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. And then the second verse is found in Paul's letter to the Galatians, and it goes like this. Bear one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Now, what I want to do is I want to explore how each of these verses can inform the lives that we live with one another in this church community. But first, before we get there, I want to introduce you to one of my very favorite puzzles. And so my question is, what do you know about semiotics? No, okay, all right, fine. And the answer is absolutely nothing. I want you to know that's okay. Um, I only learned about semiotics in graduate school, and even there, it was kind of a fringe topic that I stumbled upon somehow in a British literature course. So unless you've taken grad school British literature courses, I suppose you don't have any reason to know. But the point is, when I learned about this, I fell in love with it. And here's, here's the gist. Semiotics is the study of language sign systems. The study of language sign systems. You need some definitions. A sign system is the apparently arbitrary vehicle that we humans create to ferry meaning between the way things exist in our minds and how they might exist in the minds of others. I have a thought, I want you to share my thought, I need some vehicle to get my thought from me to you that will work. Here's a practical example of how this works. If I have in my head an idea of a particular tree and I want to communicate that idea to you, we both need to have access to a common sign system that can help me get what is in my head into your head. And the word tree is that sign. It is that vehicle. And when I say it, right, although it is not the actual thing, the word tree is not a real tree. It's not the thing I want to share. We exist in a community where you can hear the word that I say 
You can understand it, and then you can turn that word into an idea in your own head too. And in fact, right, we just did this. I said tree, and then all on your own, you have now imagined a tree. The word isn't actually the thing, right? It's just a group of letters. It's an entirely arbitrary set of sounds. But still, by some miracle, right, that word moves the idea over to you. And what semiotics investigates is why this seems to work. Because here's the trouble with sign systems. In truth, right, the tree that you are now thinking of is not the same one that I'm thinking of. It can't be, right? I mean, you know that it's not a car, right? You're not thinking of a dog. So it is a tree, but it's not my tree. It's now your tree. Maybe it's the tree at the end of your driveway in the house you're growing up in or a tree you saw on your way inside. But it's not mine. Which means that the word we're using, the sign, the word tree, isn't actually enough to move the idea completely over to you. There's this gap in the word. There's this insufficiency in the word that, like, as a society, we just kind of ignore. We just ignore that gap. Well, you might be thinking, right, you could have given me more words, and that might have helped, and that would have created a clearer picture. And the answer, of course, is like, yes, I could have given you more words, but what a semiotic way of thinking reveals is, of course, that those additional words have to have the same kinds of gaps, too. So I can say things like, it's a dark green pine tree, but the problem is that dark and green and pine are all insufficient signs themselves. And so logically speaking, because you did high school math at a point, right, you know that if using more words means multiplying the gaps in all of those words, what should be happening is we should actually be getting less clear as we go along, not more clear, because we have more gaps and more words, right? So the puzzle, the riddle that got me so curious once upon a time in this British, British literature course is that weirdly, that isn't what actually seems to happen. When we add more words, the image does get clearer. We did get closer when I said dark green pine tree, not further apart. So semioticians, that's a mouthful, semioticians, are people who are trying to understand why. Why does that work? Why does language ever work? Where does it come from? And what other things is a language doing beyond what it seems like it's doing, which is just attaching meaning to groups of letters? Because there has to be some other thing happening in a sign system. There has to be some other thing happening with words, or else, well, I mean, honestly, or else the 700 or so words that I've now said this morning would have led us completely into the dark by now. And you're thinking, they have let us. <laughs> but here's, here's where I'm going with all this. Just like a language, a church community really should not work. Like the letters in a word, we are more or less a random group of people, most of whom would have no real way of even knowing each other if revolution hadn't brought us together. And just like the words that all those different letters create, we are all also insufficient. We say that we are here to be like Christ in the world. 
We even take on the name Christian as a sign for ourselves in order to try and communicate the idea of Christ. But the truth, of course, is that not one of us is all that much like Jesus. Wouldn't putting a bunch of broken people together in a room multiply the confusion? Wouldn't it multiply the gaps between us and Christ? So how in the world, how is the world around us supposed to see in a group of insufficient people, insufficient Christians, a clearer picture of God's love and his generosity? This thing shouldn't work. But as we've already established in this series, this thing we're doing does seem to be God's plan for revealing himself to the world. The church is supposed to be Christ's living, breathing, loving body in a community. So the question to frame our time this morning is, what does God seem to know that semioticians don't? I really just have one point to make this morning, and it's this. The church shares change. It's not about who we are. It's about the light that sparks off of our becoming. The church shares change. It's not about who we are. It's about the light that sparks off of our becoming. All right, let's go back to that verse from Proverbs. It reads like so, as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. I'm using an unusual translation for this today because I think it's going to help draw our attention to something in the original Hebrew that we tend to ignore. And I also should tell you now that if this is a verse that you already know and love or perhaps have tattooed on your body, as at least one of you does, I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask you to brace yourself for these next few minutes. Because here's the thing about this verse. Is this actually how it works? Does iron sharpen iron? Last summer, my son Graham went to Cub Scout camp and he earned his whittling chip. Anybody else have a whittling chip in the room? Show of hands. No, really? What happened? We used to be a country. What happened to you guys? No whittling chips in the whole room. All right. Anyways, that's what you have to get if you're going to get a pocket knife. Right? You don't get a pocket knife until you get your whittling chip. And so, anyways, one of the requirements for this chip was that he had to learn how to sharpen a knife if he were to get one. And do you know how it's done? Well, what you do not do is just whack another knife at it. Right? That isn't going to work. What you do instead is you scrape. Some of you are lying, too. I'm looking around the room, and you have whittling chips. There are former Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts in this room. You guys are hiding for shame. Anyways, no, you don't whack another knife with a knife to make it sharper. What you do is you scrape the edge of your blade against an oiled whetstone, right? Because it's actually the difference in the materials, particularly the grit of that stone, that removes the burrs from the knife blade and then creates a sharper edge. Now, the hard truth here is that you cannot use an iron blade to sharpen another iron blade. And in fact, if you were to try to do that, what you're going to end up doing is chipping the thing that you're trying to repair. Now, I'm sorry about all of this, Andy and others. <laughs> I know we all love this verse. 
But here's what I think this verse is actually getting at and what this particular translation can help us see. Just as one knife blade would make jagged the blade of another knife, so a man trying on his own to chip at another man will make jagged the countenance of his friend. And what countenance means here is his face. The same Hebrew word is used in other contexts to mean things like to set one's jaw on edge or to harden one's look. The big picture doesn't seem to be an improvement for your friend, in other words. The big picture seems to be that if you do this, you will irritate him. And on the one hand, perhaps we can understand how this outcome is actually more likely, right? When you criticize someone in your life, how do they typically take it? In my experience, attempts to sharpen my friends do, in fact, create friction between them, and things can spark. Perhaps you've tried to sharpen your spouse, and it has created there's the, There's my cup, scouts. Way to go. Now we've got people saying yes. All right. Anyways, things spark, and sometimes that works out well in the end, but it is not smooth or easy at first. And I can see that blowing up a bluff first on a Sunday morning is doing just this between the two of us, right? I have now, like, flicked my iron blade at your face. So what is God getting at? What ideas are these words and Proverbs trying to put in our heads? Well, here's, here's my take. I think the point of all this is that we need a whetstone. We need a whetstone. We need something different than just another iron blade if we're going to actually be improved. And the whole system is going to work better if what's used to sharpen us is like a little bit oiled too. I've read commentaries on this particular passage that suggest, at least in the broader context of the other Proverbs, that the whetstone that we're looking for here is actually Scripture, that this is the thing that improves our edge. God's Word changes us in ways that the words of other people will not and just simply cannot. There's something more about God's words, a power and a meaning that they carry within them that does deeper work. And if that is true, if the whetstone, the oiled whetstone that does the deeper work is scripture, then what is the actual responsibility of your fellow knives, right? Of your fellow iron blades, of the friends who see a problem in your life, see a dullness in your life? I don't think the answer is to be abrasive and critical. I think it is to lean in together towards real meaning and change. To seek wisdom together, to allow yourself to be corrected so that you can model for your friend, your fellow knife blade, what that willingness, that softness, and that eagerness for improvement might look like so that your friend can see in your heart what could be cultivated in his own. So you can go to the whetstone and in being sharpened serve as an encouragement and an example, and as a proof that the whetstone works. So can iron sharpen iron? Not exactly. But can iron be sharpened? Always. So if this church is, at least in this metaphor, a knife drawer, what is distinct about us in the world is that we can be a drawer full of knives who long for sharpness 
And through finding it in our relationship with our Creator, we can prove the case to one another and to others. We can, in other words, carry the meaning that transformation is possible. No one, no one left. That's what's important. Good. So what about the verse from Galatians? How am I going to ruin this? Well, the good news is I don't, I don't think I am. As with many things in Scripture, a problem that is described in the writings of the Old Testament finds new answers and a deeper resonance in the life of Jesus. So what happens here is this. Paul writes to his friends, bear one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. But this should beg a question, right? What is the law of Christ? And it turns out we have a good answer that comes directly from Jesus himself in John 15, where he says to his disciples, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. We give Jesus a reputation sometimes for being like, mystical and confusing, this isn't one of those times, right? That is extremely clear. But how, at least in Paul's mind, right, does the meaning of Jesus's command turn into the sign he's giving us, which is to bear one another's burdens? What's the connection between the two? Is this love? So let's take the original image. Let's work this through. Let's take the original image, the tree that is in Jesus's imaginings, and then see if bearing one another's burdens is a set of words that can move that Jesus tree from Jesus into our minds. What is Jesus trying to communicate here? In this passage, Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples for his coming crucifixion. That's what's happening at this moment in John. He understands that these men have been following him at least primarily because what they believe about him is that he is the Messiah. That's the word that he has so far been trying to communicate with them using. But the problem is, in their minds, there is a conception of what Messiah is that is out of sync with what Jesus is doing. They have always conceived that the Messiah is going to be a man of God who will confront corruption inside of Israel, will overcome the tyranny of Rome, and then will reestablish the Jewish people distinctly as leaders in the world. This, in their imagination, is the only thing that God could possibly have meant when he described his coming kingdom on earth. That is, what a kingdom of God on earth would be. But what does Jesus know, right? Well, what he knows is that, in fact, the tyranny that people need to be delivered from is not Rome. That the tyranny they need deliverance from is the legacy of fear and sinful rebellion that passes through all of us, generation to generation to generation. And he also knows that the way that we can be delivered from that legacy of fear and rebellion isn't through a military victory, but through an act of sacrifice that can atone for our collective sin. And then a miraculous act of resurrection from the dead, which can deliver us to a new and living hope, a new life, a new freedom from those fears. And he has tried to explain all of this, this idea in Jesus' head. He has tried to explain all of this to his disciples for years at this point, tried to ferry this meaning through his words and his teachings and his parables into them 
but it has not yet worked. The disciples love him deeply, but they do not see what he is doing. And so here, what Jesus is trying to do is to take this idea in God's mind of real deliverance of what people really need and then incarnate it first in his own living body and then in a commandment that will help his friends learn how to imitate his incarnation themselves. Help them learn how to be vehicles for this meaning in the same way that he is a vehicle for this meaning. So he says, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Greater love here is not a political or a military victory. Greater love is not a championship celebration. Greater love is laying down one's life for one's friends, which is to say that greater love is an act of extreme generosity at the expense of oneself for the benefit of another. Now, as we know, right, Jesus is going to go on to do this very thing. He will become the sign through which the idea of in God's heart is communicated to the world. But how does Paul then, years later, turn what Jesus has done into these words about bearing burdens? Does that group of words communicate what Jesus is trying to get at? I think what's happening here stems from Paul's belief that real Christian living has to share Jesus' heart as much as it shares Jesus' behaviors. Has to share his heart as much as it shares his behaviors. What Paul has learned the hard way in his time as a leader in the church is that you can tell the early Christians to do all sorts of Jesus things. And oftentimes they will even listen to you you can tell churches to give money away and they'll do it. You can tell them to house the homeless and they'll do it. To feed the hungry and they'll do it. But the actual idea that leads to all of those behaviors in a natural way, that makes them not just a checklist of things you do, but something that flows out from you, has to begin with empathy. With a deep empathy for other human beings. If we're going to bear one another's burdens, that implies that we have to actually recognize one another's burdens. Like Christ before us, we have to see what our friends' deepest problems really are. And if we can do this part, right, if we can know each other and be known by each other ourselves, then the idea here is that all those Christ-like behaviors will stop looking like a checklist that we work our way through, and they will start looking like natural reactions to the things that we're seeing and discovering in other people. To put this practically, it's easier for me to buy your groceries for you one week if I know that money is tight in your household. If I don't know that, it's unlikely I'm going to buy the groceries. It's easier to volunteer to go with you to an AA meeting if you have let me know that you're struggling with addiction. It is easier for me to meet you for coffee if I know that you're feeling lonely. 
So the question is, how does this body, right, how does this church help with all that? Well, if we make the heartbeat of revolution one of acknowledging our weaknesses, of humility, then this becomes a community of free and eager generosity. My hope and prayer is that it is safe to be broken here. And that everybody in this room needs to know that. That you can be messed up here. And that honesty about your brokenness, honesty about my own brokenness, will lead to a deeper understanding of God's heart. And then through that, a deeper understanding of Jesus' commandment. The thing I do know about this room is that this room is full of Cub Scouts, first of all, <laughs> but second to Cub Scouts, the thing that this room is full of is burden shares. I know that many of you would seize any opportunity to share somebody else's burden. It's in your wiring. You want to do it, but too often we don't know where the burdens are. And so people sit around waiting to help somebody with a burden, and eventually they just sort of assume everybody else has their act together, nothing comes up, and then you kind of like forget about it. So when I say that the church exists for our sake, one of the things I'm saying is that it can facilitate knowing and being known. That's what a church can do. And when that happens, when we know and are known, the miracle is that like we crack that semiotic code that we started with today about how do insufficient words or people add up to a clearer picture? Because, and the answer is this, because there is a spark that travels between words that can enrich what they mean together. So for example, when I say Charlie Brown Christmas tree, you might have different ideas about what each of those four distinct words means, Charlie Brown Christmas. But together, they resonate with a separate image that we share. And so you can get it, even though there are more words. Some of you are like, that really worked. And it did. That was really, that was clever. Thank you. What did you get in that course? Say what? What grade did you get in that course? Oh, an A. I always do this in classes. I'm a nerd that way. Shouldn't bear it. Anyway, as Christians, here's the point. As Christians, the spark the resonance, the miracle that gives life and fullness to the words and solves the puzzle of meaning when we try to communicate. The thing in us that is like the Charlie Brown Christmas image in your head is God himself. We know him. And then more specifically, it is the Holy Spirit of God who lives in us, who lives in Scripture, and then energizes every Christian's life. So when we lean into the whetstone together, when we bear each other's burdens, we're embracing something mystical in our relationships. Our relationships with God, our relationships with each other. Something that words are insufficient to share. And in doing that, we can become these vessels for an idea, for God's idea about who and what people are supposed to be. And we can carry more meaning with each other and with the Holy Spirit within us than we could ever carry on our own. 
And so when we say that the church exists for our sake, what we mean is that the church gathers us together so that we can become more, so that we can mean more, so that we can live more and love more than we could when we didn't have that common language and that common experience with our God. When what we have in common transforms us, then we can testify even as broken people. We can testify as, in fact, broken but being made whole people. We can testify to something greater, to a greater dream and a greater idea than we can carry on around. So I said earlier, I just have one point to make this morning, and it was this, right? The church shares change. It's not about who we are. It is about the light that sparks off of our becoming. Our messiness tells the story. The beautiful thing is that this light that we're sharing, not by our own power because of how wonderful we are, but specifically because of our willingness to admit and even embrace our limitations and our failures, that brings brightness to the world. That honesty and vulnerability is attractive and illuminating and marvelous. And more than that, our honesty and vulnerability encourages change. It encourages trust in people from outside the community, which is something that real change is always going to require. That knife has to trust the whetstone, right? When you choose to be vulnerable, in other words, it doesn't just benefit you. When you choose to be vulnerable, it benefits everyone. So together, the closing here is this. Let's make that choice. Let's be like you. Be the dinged up blade that you are. Be a person who can see and acknowledge your own burdens. And because you are safe in the community that God has drawn you into, share who and what you really are. Talk to someone. Be honest with someone. Because what we believe is that there is a whetstone here for you that will not chip you, that will not set your countenance on edge, right? But will lovingly restore you to what you have been made for. And the more we lean into this, the more we love each other and help each other and encourage each other, the more clearly we will share God's hope, his word with the world. We are God's people. May he, in his goodness, fill us with meaning that is beyond ourselves. And may that idea of God's love move from his mind through us as his church and fully into the hearts and the minds of other people.